Thanks, Biza. That was awesome. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're here today because we get to dive into God's Word together and let it work on our hearts, drawing us closer to Him as our delight above all else in life. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today, if you want to open your Bibles up to that, in verses 44 through 46. And if you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. So go ahead and open up to Matthew 13. And as you're turning there, I'll provide a little bit of context uh, for what we'll be reading today. So in this chapter, Jesus shares eight parables on the kingdom of heaven. And a parable is it's an illustration or a metaphor that's usually not followed up with an explanation. You know, when Brandon preaches or Hoyt preaches or when I preach, we usually give an illustration and then we explain what we mean by it. But when Jesus gives his parables, he doesn't follow it up with the explanation, so people are sometimes a little confused. And Brandon preached on the first parable in this chapter a couple weeks ago, um, the parable of the sower and the seed with the different soils. And in verse 10, when, after Jesus has shared that parable, we see the disciples, they come up to Jesus and they ask him, why is he speaking in parables to the crowd? And Jesus explains to his disciples in the following verses that he's not just going to give away the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to those that aren't truly listening and wanting to be a part of God's kingdom. So he uses parables. And in verses 13 through 15 in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this, For this reason I speak to them in parables. Because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, yet never understand. And you will look and look, and yet never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turned back and I would cure them. So Jesus speaks in parables to reveal the truth of God's kingdom only to those who are truly listening and seeing with a softened heart toward God. And these parables that he shares were about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And Matthew chooses to use the word kingdom of heaven specifically because when he wrote this letter, he was intending it for a Jewish audience. And the Jews were very sensitive about using the name of the Lord. And so Matthew is respectful in that, and he uses kingdom of heaven. And if you look in the other gospels, you'll see um, Mark, Luke, John, they use kingdom of God. And so those are interchangeable. And so this kingdom that Matthew, that Jesus is sharing these parables on, it refers to God's dominion over those who belong to him those who believe in him and the spiritual rule he has over their hearts. So Matthew chapter 13 is a lot of teaching in parables on this kingdom of heaven. And this morning we're going to be looking at two of these parables in verses 44 through 46. So let's pray and get into God's word. God, I thank you for this morning that we can come here and join together as brothers and sisters in Christ to sing praises to you of how great and awesome and gracious you are. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word this morning that our hearts can be open, our eyes can be open to see what you have to say to us, Lord. I pray that we can be 
humble and submitting to what your word has to say. And Lord, that you can lead us closer and closer to you as the delight of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Up to this point, the parables have illustrated a few different things about the kingdom of heaven. They've illustrated men's varying responses to God's kingdom with the parable of the sower and the seed. They've illustrated its present coexistence with unbelievers in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And it's also illustrated how God's kingdom and its power and influence is spreading and growing in the world with the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. And so then we come to our text for today in verses 44 through 46. And at this point, the crowds are no longer with Jesus. It's just Jesus and his disciples in the house. And he just finished interpreting the second parable he had shared he, that he had told to the crowds about the parable of the wheat and the weeds and so the, so the disciples could better understand what he meant. And then he goes straight into this next set of parables. And at this point, you could imagine the disciples are starting to become curious and starting to wonder, how does one become a part of God's kingdom? Jesus has shared all these different things about God's kingdom, but how do you become a part of this kingdom? Is it based on something you're born into? Like for them being an Israelite and this descendant of Abraham, is that the ticket into God's kingdom? Or is it, is it something else? Is it based on how good of a person I am? Or is it based on what I can do to please God so that he would let me into his kingdom, so that I could earn my way into his kingdom? What we see with these two parables is that the focus is on what it looks like in becoming a part of God's kingdom and that he is our greatest treasure. The first truth of God's kingdom is that it's personal. The first truth of God's kingdom is that it's personal. I'm going to reread the two parables again. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. What we see in these two parables are two different accounts of a single person either stumbling upon or they're actually in search of a great treasure, and then they sell everything they have to personally receive that which is worth everything to them. Jesus is making it clear that whether one intentionally or unintentionally comes upon the knowledge of the kingdom of God, it is solely them by themselves. There's no one else helping them buy this treasure or making them sell all they have to buy it. Becoming a part of God's kingdom is personal because it means you yourself are entering into a personal relationship with God himself. Remember that the kingdom of God is God's dominion. It's his spiritual rule over those who truly believe in him. It's more than just entering into this nice golden land. 
You're becoming in relationship with God himself. God's kingdom is personal. You get to know God himself. It's not something you inherit from your family or your friends just because they're Christians or they're believers. It's not something that because your parents are a part of it, you are now too. No, the kingdom of God is something that an individual personally receives. It doesn't matter if you go to church with your family, if you listen to sermons, if you go to youth group, or even if you're a member of a church following the crowd and trying to blend in if you have not personally become a part of God's kingdom. Paul reminds his Jewish brothers and sisters in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Paul's reminding his Jewish audiences that being a child of God, being a part of God's kingdom, is not something you receive just because all your ancestors did. Don't assume you're a child of God because you blend in with everyone else. It is personal. For someone to be a part of God's kingdom, he or she must personally make his, his or her own decision to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And we see in the context of these parables, to receive him as a, his or her treasure. His or her treasure. What we also see about God's kingdom being personal is that it can be entered into from different circumstances. In the first parable, a man just happened to find some treasure buried in a field. The parable doesn't say he was looking for anything, and certainly not priceless treasure. And in the second parable, though, we see the man was in search of the very thing he found and then bought. The man in the first parable, he wasn't concerned with finding treasure. He was most likely just going about his normal business in life. Maybe he was working in the field as a source of income, or he was just on a journey passing through the field. Finding this priceless treasure was the last thing on his mind. And this is perhaps very similar to how many of us stumbled upon the gospel as we were going about our normal routine in life. For me, I went to a Super Bowl party. I wasn't planning on doing anything else besides watching football and eating food. And then boom, it hit me. We see it with this woman at the well in John 4, where she was simply going out to get water. She was just going out to fill her jar of water. And then she encounters Jesus himself, the living water, and she went home completely changed and ends up telling her whole village about it as well. We also see this with Paul as he was zealously persecuting Christians, as he was completely against God's kingdom. And on the way to Damascus, he has a personal encounter with Christ that changes his life forever. And for ourselves, while we're going about the normal routines of our lives, concerned with building a career, raising a family, or going to school, we stumbled upon this treasure. And maybe it was through a sermon, or a book, or listening to the radio one day, or a conversation we had, and then we believed. We saw the priceless value contained in the gospel, and we put our faith in Christ. Or maybe you're like the man in the second parable, who is earnestly seeking after a treasure, trying one religion after another, trying one philosophy after another, but not finding nothing satisfying, and still continuing your search, knowing that the truth was out there somewhere, that there was truly satisfying treasure. Whether you stumbled upon it, or you're intently searching for it, 
or you have yet to encounter this treasure yourself of knowing God and being with him in this kingdom, we see that there is no way, there's no set way of coming before it. You don't have to somehow become someone else before receiving God's kingdom. You don't have to change who you are. You don't have to become this better, awesome person. You can come from wherever you're at, whether you're stumbling across it or intently seeking it out. And this takes us to the second truth of these parables, that God's kingdom is priceless, the greatest treasure of all. God's kingdom is priceless, the greatest treasure of all. Let's read the two parables again. We're going to have these memorized by the end of the day, guys, I'm telling you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. And both of these short little parables, we see the value of God's kingdom through the fact that it was worth selling everything one has just to possess it. But what makes the kingdom of God so great? Why is it priceless? Why is it this greatest treasure of all? I mean, there's a lot of enticing and valuable things in this world. And whether it's having a successful career or marrying the man or woman of your dreams or acquiring all the coolest items and gadgets and latest technology, there are numerous things that our world says is valuable. But what we fail to recognize in all of these things is the lack of ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction found in them. Our careers could always be easier or better or somehow make us more money. Our spouses or our families, they will disappoint us and can make us long for a better or a different relationship. All the things we collect and invest in get old and stop entertaining us at some point, and so we look for the next thing. None of these things leave us feeling ultimately satisfied. What Jesus is claiming here, though, in these two parables is that the kingdom of God is greater than anything else in this world. Why? Because God is the only one that can satisfy our deepest longings. And he did what we could not do. God has made his kingdom available to anyone, regardless of how wicked and sinful they are, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ paying the penalty of sin, and giving new life to anyone who believes in him. The reason why we're always seeking fulfillment and satisfaction is because our relationship with God has been broken by our sinful nature. We don't naturally desire God. We would rather please ourselves above all else. It's all about me and building my own kingdom. But we are always left feeling unsatisfied. Because only God can truly satisfy our hearts. Psalm 16:11 says this: "You, God, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures." Jesus says in John 6:35, "I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. The kingdom of God is priceless because there is nothing that can satisfy us besides God himself. This leads us to our next truth. 
The third truth is that God's kingdom becomes our source of joy when we take hold of it. God's kingdom becomes our source of joy when we take hold of it. When we encounter God and his kingdom and see it as this greatest treasure of all, it becomes our source of ultimate joy. Look at the end of Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 44. It says, Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. In his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. When the man saw the value of this treasure, he was delighted to sell everything he had. Finding this treasure brought him the greatest joy he had ever known. And if that's the case with God and his kingdom, why in the world do so many people reject God? If God is the greatest treasure of all and the source of joy, why doesn't everyone put their faith in him? Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Why doesn't everyone put their faith in God? Romans chapter 1, in verse 20, it says this. For his invisible attributes, talking about God, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles, for idols. Therefore, because of all that, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Our wicked hearts have led us astray to loving and serving created things rather than the creator. We try and find joy in these things, deceiving ourselves into believing that they will fill us with joy. All the while, God is patiently and graciously holding out this treasure of himself and his kingdom. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that shows just how foolish our desires are to seek these things of this world rather than God himself. And it comes from a sermon of his titled, The Weight of Glory. And in it, he says this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward... And the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle far too easily for simple things in this world to try and satisfy ourselves. 
And in doing so, we miss the greatest treasure of all, the one that gives never-ending joy. So how do you view God and his kingdom? And lots of people believe in Jesus. Even the demons and Satan believe in Jesus. So how do you view God and his kingdom? Do you believe in Jesus because your friends and family do? Because it's an obligation? Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior just to not be in hell? Is he your key into heaven, but you could actually care less about Jesus being there? Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord because you were told to, or it seems like the right thing to do? Or do you treasure Jesus more than everything? Is he your delight? I want us to turn to Psalm 63 now, Psalm 63, so we can look at what this delight looks like firsthand in the personal life of David. Psalm 63. Verses 1 through 5 say this. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will praise you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. Do we delight in God as David did? Do we eagerly seek and thirst for God? What takes priority in your life? Don't satisfy yourselves with the mud pies of this world. Don't cling to your TV, your favorite sports team, your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse, your kids, to alcohol, to pornography, to your job or to food. God is the one we ought to delight in. John Piper challenges Christians with the following. He says, God is not worshipped when he is not our delight and our joy. We dishonor God when we say something else satisfies us more. This is the opposite of worship. What are you delighting yourself in that needs to be exchanged with God himself? What are you delighting yourself in that needs to be exchanged with God himself? This takes us to our final point. The fourth truth is that God's kingdom is worth everything. God's kingdom is worth everything. Turn back to Matthew 13. Read the two parables one more time here. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, 
he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Both of these parables end with a person selling everything they had to buy what they found. And what we see with these two characters is that they're willing to surrender everything and anything for this treasure. And I want to make it clear, though, that in regards to salvation, we cannot purchase it. We don't even deserve it. We do not deserve this treasure. No one is deserving of this treasure that God offers. It's solely by his grace that we can stumble upon or eagerly seek out his kingdom. And when we do encounter this treasure from God, and we desire this free and gracious gift of salvation, a part of God's saving work in all of this is this selling everything we have. It's God's love and grace that drives us to surrender all that we have to him in joy. And in surrendering this old life, we receive new life, this life to the fullest. And to better grasp this surrender, I want to turn to Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. So just a page or two over, probably, in your Bible. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. If anyone wants to come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? Jesus makes it clear that following him is costly. Being a part of God's kingdom is costly. And it's so costly that he calls his followers to lose their lives. He calls his followers to take up a cross, signifying they're ready to die. Salvation is not a simple prayer or a walking to the altar, and then you go on living your life until you die. That's not what salvation is. There are many people who, out there who believe that a simple prayer was their ticket into God's kingdom, but the rest of their lives show no fruit and no desire for God. What salvation is, it's, it's God graciously restoring relationships to those who truly believe in him, to those who delight in him, to those that he is their greatest joy. And in this restoring of relationship, believers desire this salvation above everything else. And they are more than happy to surrender everything because God is their treasure. They don't need anything else. God satisfies them alone. He is their treasure, their joy, just like the two men in the parables. Salvation costs the believer nothing in terms of payment because the only payment that was good enough was Jesus' death to pay the penalty of our sin. But it does cost the believer everything in terms of surrendering their life to God. Paul talks about this personally in his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 3, starting in verse 4, Paul describes how he, he could have been proud in and of himself. He was this amazing Jew. He had everything right. He was doing it all right. He was a great person. But then he shares what all that meant compared to knowing Christ. So flip over to Philippians 3 real quick. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Paul says this, Although I once had confidence in the flesh, 
If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I, Paul, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul was the perfect Jew. And yet, listen to what he says next. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul had every reason to delight in himself and his accomplishments, but he considered all of it filth compared to knowing Christ and having faith in him. That was his greatest treasure. Paul understood that righteousness Righteousness through faith in Christ made everything else look like rubbish, and he had no problem surrendering it all, just like the men in the parables. This morning, we've learned some things about God's kingdom, that it's personal and it can be entered into from different circumstances, that his kingdom is priceless. It's the greatest treasure of all. We've learned that God's kingdom becomes our source of joy when we take hold of it as our own treasure, and that God's kingdom is worth everything. So I asked this question earlier, and I want to ask it again. What are you delighting yourself in that needs to be exchanged with God? What do you need to surrender to sell along with everything else in your life so that God can be your sole delight? Even as true followers of Christ, it's easy to get caught in the routine of life and to let God sort of fall to the back burner. And then these other things start to creep in, and they become our source of joy. That's what led me to preach this. What are you delighting yourself in that needs to be exchanged with God? If you've never put your faith in God as your delight, and this morning you see the priceless value of God and his kingdom, the incomparable joy that comes from God alone, and that only through faith in Christ's death and resurrection are we considered righteous before God, I urge you to repent and to believe. To turn away from your sinful and selfish ways and to turn toward God and his kingdom, willing to surrender everything for this newfound treasure. Perhaps you haven't publicly professed your faith through baptism and you want to declare that your delight is in Christ alone. I urge you to do so follow up with that. John Piper says the following in regards to faith. The pursuit of joy in God is not optional. It is not an extra that a person might grow into after he comes to faith. It's not simply a way to enhance your walk with the Lord. Until your heart has hit upon this pursuit, your faith cannot please God. It is not saving faith. So wherever you are, 
God offers this priceless kingdom to any person, no matter how poor, how insignificant, or how sinful. He offers it to anyone who trusts in Christ. Delight yourself in him. To finish up this morning, I want to go back to David's psalm that we looked at earlier. That's Psalm 63. I want to read it before we pray, just as an encouragement as to what it personally looks like to delight in the Lord. Psalm 63. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will praise you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Let's stand together and pray. God, I thank you for the unfathomable treasure that you are. Lord, I pray that you can be our greatest delight, that you can be our source of joy. Lord, I pray that you can search and examine our hearts and reveal to us anything that is in the way of you being our true treasure, our ultimate source of joy, Lord, and that you can remove those from our hearts, Lord, so that you can be our everlasting joy. God, I pray that we can pray prayers like David did, that we can seek you and thirst for you so that we can be ultimately satisfied in you and that you can lead us in the life you desire for us. I just pray that as we go into this time of response, Lord, that we can just sing praises to you, we can pray to you wherever we're at, Lord. I just thank you so much for your gracious love. In your name we pray, amen.